0: On the other side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com slash otos, or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the other side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective. Hello,
1: and welcome to On the Other Side, Millennials and Religion. I am your host, Michelle Ross. Today, I will be interviewing Chris Smith. Chris Smith grew up Pentecostal, and... um, he later left his faith, um, and here he is today to tell us his story.
2: Hi. Well,
1: welcome, Chris Smith.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here.
1: I'm excited to have you. Um, Chris and I know have known each other for a little while, and uh, his story is quite fascinating. So first... Tell us about um your upbringing. You were born into a Pentecostal family where your parents both very active Pentecostal folk.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. My mom especially is uh, pretty intense um, you know she's got lots of miracle stories and uh, she's a convert from Catholicism and um, so she's quite devout uh, and uh, my dad has uh also some, you know, visionary experiences that he's had. And uh both of them have been Pentecostal. Well, my mom has been Pentecostal since I think the 1960s. And uh my dad, I guess more recently, he was raised Methodist, but uh kind of became Pentecostal after meeting my mom. And uh So they... is that
1: is that kind of I I, I noticed you mentioned Um, that they're both very much Pentecostal. They both had a lot of miracle experiences. Is that kind of the defining feature of being Pentecostal?
2: That is. Pentecostals are very demonstrative, and they believe in what are called the gifts of the Spirit. And so if you read the Pauline epistles in the New Testament, the the letters written by the Apostle Paul, uh, you will find that he talks about gifts of the Spirit, including prophecy, tongues, healing, miracles. Um, And so Pentecostals really emphasize all of that. They believe in what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there are some passages in the New Testament that talk about uh, laying hands on people, and then they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues. Um, Tongues meaning languages that you don't know. So sort of you're miraculously given the gift to speak in uh languages that you don't know including angelic languages and that's the way that pentecostals tend to interpret it is that what they're speaking is angelic languages and uh they will do this in worship services so they'll speak in tongues and they believe that they're speaking in angelic languages um so and this is prayer and worship and the spirit is supplying words that they don't know how to say you know for instance you don't know what to pray for and so you speak in tongues and the spirit prays through you for whatever you should be praying for
1: yeah so so let me ask you this because like for example in mormonism you can be a mormon like you can be baptized into the church you're on the church records but you maybe don't have never had a spiritual experience or you don't believe it's the true church, um, you can still be Mormon. So can you be Pentecostal if you, you know, like let's say you've never had a miracle or is that, does that mean you can't be Pentecostal if you haven't done those things? No, you
2: absolutely, you absolutely can be a Pentecostal uh, without doing those things.
1: So how do you become Um, a Pentecostal? Is it a baptism? Is it...
2: Yes. So, I mean, basically, Pentecostals believe that uh, all that's required to be a Christian or a Pentecostal Christian is to make a profession of faith, you know, say that you believe in Jesus, confess belief in Jesus, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and then essentially you are a Pentecostal Christian. Now, they do have the baptismal rite. Typically, though, they view that not as conferring salvation, but merely as a sign of the commitment that you've made. So they don't believe that it's a salvific ordinance. It's just a symbolic ordinance. Gotcha. And then uh, you can receive a second baptism, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's what confers gifts such as tongues. And they typically believe that tongues is the sign that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's kind of like the the bonus level. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that That's getting into the inner circle, sort of. Uh, you you can be saved without doing that yeah exactly
1: so when you speak in tongues you're like in the inner circle of pentecostals
2: right they believe that everybody should speak in tongues and that everybody can receive the gift of tongues if they pray for it and ask for it and and have faith but uh it's not a requirement for salvation it's kind of the the extra extra mile
1: And so there, is there any like centralized governing body or Um, is each Pentecostal church its own kind of governing body?
2: There are a few major denominations. So Pentecostalism got its roots about 1906. Um, I mean, there's a couple different uh, claimed origins for the movement, but 1906 is the sort of most famous one. It was the Azusa Street Revival. Little church on Azusa Street in LA had this big revival, and blacks and whites were worshiping and praying together. It was very interracial. And um, out of that came a denomination called the Assemblies of God, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. Um, and the Assemblies of God, unfortunately, very quickly became a white church. Uh, it kind of was where all the white people went, and then the uh, Blacks were sort of pushed out or pushed into lesser roles, even though William Seymour, the guy who had led the original revival, was a black preacher. And so the blacks ended up congregating in their own denominations, including the Church of God. Um, And so there's lots of Pentecostal denominations now, though. I mean, one of the things that social scientists say about Pentecostalism is it's gone from no members at the beginning of the 21st century or the 20th century to about half a billion members at the end of the 20th half century a billion and half a billion yeah, about 500 million in a century which is an incredible rate of growth uh, and one way that that happened is that they spun off so many new movements i mean when everybody is a prophet There's a lot of potential for people to get, you know, spiritual calls to go start new churches and to start new denominations and to get new theologies. And so it just, it spawns new denominations at an incredible rate. And when you have that much entrepreneurship, some of them are going to really hit it big. Some of those entrepreneurs are really going to hit it big. And so you get a lot of, uh, a lot of different denominations, but some of them are very, very successful. So
1: you mentioned that kind of, Um, you know, it was a lot more segregated in the beginning and then, or not segregated, you said it became segregated. It was more racially inclusive and then became segregated. Do you think that it's shifted to become more racially inclusive again?
2: Um, There are some Pentecostal denominations that are more... um, diverse than others i would say for the most part they are all racially inclusive i mean they would all in theory maybe not all but most of them would in theory accept both blacks and whites equally and they wouldn't you know discriminate in leadership roles but in practice it still tends to be fairly segregated um sunday has been called the most segregated hour in america uh and i think there's a lot of truth to that you know the churches do tend to sort themselves into white and black. Yeah, it's churches. kind of.
1: It's kind of unfortunate, uh, actually, that religion. It's yeah, that religion yeah. has kind of led to that, you know. So yeah, totally. okay, so you were raised Pentecostal. Were you? Did you kind of buy it hook, line, and sinker from the beginning?
2: Oh, I was very devout. Um, now I will say I had moments of doubt. I mean, early on in life, I remember probably being. I don't know, second, third grade, and talking to one of my friends, and he was talking about Santa Claus as if Santa Claus was real. And my parents had never done the Santa Claus thing with me. I mean, they always joked about Santa Claus, but we all knew it was a joke, and they never taught me to believe that Santa Claus was real. And so when my friend at school believed that Santa Claus was real, I thought he was crazy. I was like, Are you kidding me? Like, you believe in Santa Claus? And I just laughed. And then I went home and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, Santa Claus is really, really similar to God belief, Santa Claus belief is. And, you know, there's this invisible man in the sky who gives you things, and you ask for things, and he doesn't talk back to you, but you're supposed to believe in him. I just remember being struck with, like, like the force of a revelation that someday I would become an atheist.
1: Wait. How and I old remember you
2: lying old? on my bed. I, I was very, I mean, I don't know how old you are in second or third grade, but I was around that age. And I remember lying on my bed and praying, please, God, don't let me become an atheist. Yeah. <laughs> and even at that age, I, I understood how ironic that was, right? Like, if God doesn't exist, then of course, I'm praying to no one. Um, but yeah, so I, I had that doubt very early. And I always kind of, even when I had supernatural experiences over the course of my life, I always had some doubt and some question in the back of my mind. Like, am I making this up? Am I exaggerating this? Um, so that, that was always there. I have always been a critical thinker. But, uh, no, I was very zealous. I was very into it. I fully believed that Jesus was my Savior and that he would forgiven my sins and that he still did miracles in the world like you, the you whole nine You felt this
1: way hours. as a teenager?
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. So
1: what did you have? You said you had some miracle experiences. Did you have miracle experiences while you were growing up?
2: Uh, yeah. So um, when I was in high school, uh, I my car had some issues where it wouldn't start sometimes. Um, and usually if I waited a while, it would start. I just had to wait, you know, try it and then wait a few minutes and then try it again. Um, and this one time I was in the car with my friends and the car wouldn't start. Uh, and then I waited a few minutes and tried it again and then it would still wouldn't start. And I thought, oh, boy, my car is busted uh, for good this time. And then I prayed aloud, Lord, you created the universe. You can start my car and I tried it tried again. And the car started and my friends were all, oh, my gosh, wow, that was amazing. <laughs> Um, Of course, they didn't know that this was a recurring problem, right, and that, you know, if I waited a while, usually the car would start, and I didn't have the heart to tell them that, Um, so I kind of chalked this up as a miracle experience, but also, you know, there's that huge hoping of doubt there, and it's interesting that I self-edited and kind of misled my friends, because I think probably religious people do that sort of thing all the time. Yeah. Um, I wasn't lying, but I was lying by omission. Um, but in, you know, it's not considered polite in those circles to raise doubts if you have them. And so, uh, I didn't consider that to be something that I could or so should So why
1: isn't it, um, so you're not really supposed to have doubts? Like why, why is that an issue?
2: Well, I, you can have doubts, but I don't know. It's kind of like, because believe people, me,
1: I understand, eternal side, I understand 100%. Yeah. However. I don't understand what it's like (laughs) in the Pentecostalism. I understand what it's like to have doubts in Mormonism because you believe it's like the one true church and you're not supposed to question or, you know, but like, why? So why is that kind of?
2: I mean, it's a combination of things. Part of it is just social pressure. Uh, People look down upon you if you express doubts. And there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about how important it is to have faith. And so if you have doubts, then in some sense, that's a moral failure from a New Testament perspective. Um, But also, if people's mortal salvation, uh, eternal salvation rests upon them having faith, and then you go and raise doubts in their mind, then you are potentially putting their salvation in jeopardy. You know, so this is just not really something that you typically do. Interesting. Um, I don't know. It was always... Difficult thing to balance, so
1: it's not like because Um, in some um religions, like once you have accepted Christ, um, or once mm -hmm. you've been kind of born again, you'll never lose that. Like, even if you doubt or like go off the path for a little bit, um, and this is clearly not in how it is in Mormonism, but like in other Christian faiths, um. So is that not how it is in Pentecostalism is like, if you are saved or you have these miracles, you can still fall off the track and lose your faith and. Not right. Be saved. So what you're
2: talking about is sometimes called once saved, always saved. Yeah, And it's a theological debate in evangelical circles because the new Testament does say something to this effect. Um, but. The thing is, even the people who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. If you were to be a Baptist, for instance, and then fall away from the Baptist church and become a hard-drinking drug user and et cetera, they wouldn't say that you were still a Christian. What they would say is that you were never a Christian in the first place. (laughs) Does that make sense? So they would sort of retroactively edit your history to say that you were never actually converted. Mm. Um, and so, but in in the Pentecostal tradition, no, uh, they don't have that once saved, at least in my, the, the circles I was raised in, they don't have that once saved, always saved doctrine. It's, you actually can lose your salvation in this tradition.
1: So you had some other miracles. Um, tell me about finding you finding lost keys.
2: Yeah. So, uh, there was a time in college when I, uh, you know ransacked my room looking for my keys could not find them i was late for class uh and then i sat down and prayed and you know asked god to help me find my keys and i opened my eyes and i literally was staring at my keys when i opened <laughs> my eyes uh so that was pretty pretty persuasive uh you know i did speak in tongues i had a vision once um, what was that like speaking when in I, I was like uh, how do
1: you how would you describe that
2: experience well when I, well, It it was a really interesting experience. So when I spoke in tongues, they kind of took us into a back back room and they were praying over me and a group of other people uh, to receive the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. And pretty much everybody else that they were praying for eventually spoke in tongues. And I was sort of the last one. And they kind of like initially they talked about how you can feel it bubbling up inside of you. and the Lord sort of takes over your mouth and you uh, like speaks through you. And that's kind of the initial way that they uh, explained it. But then they kept sort of like watering down the explanation as they went, as I like, it it took longer and longer for me to get there. They watered it down a little bit. And um, finally, somebody suggested that uh, they believe that you have to just speak out in faith and that the miracle to some extent may be that you just make sounds and then God fills those sounds with meaning. Um, And so that was sort of the premise under which I spoke in tongues finally. And of course, everybody else is celebrating, but I kind of felt like it was fake. And then I went home that night and I did it again by my bedside. And this time I felt it felt a bit more real. It felt a bit more authentic. And I continued to do with it. And it's interesting that As I sort of practiced this uh, over many years, it became more automatic over time. Um, So there's this thing called dissociation that psychologists talk about. And uh, it happens a lot when you're driving. You can be thinking about something completely different from your driving, but obviously you're still, some part of your mind is still focused on your driving. And you realize that you were trying to go to the store and instead you drove home because that's where you always drive to um and that i think is kind of similar to how speaking in tongues works it you practice it so much that eventually it becomes very automatic it feels very miraculous it feels like someone else is controlling you um even though you know it's really just sort of a segmented part of your your brain that's doing this
1: so what um, was the vision that you had
2: well after 911 um in in my pentecostal church they would have these open mics uh, where anybody could go up like they'd be singing and praising and everybody would be praying in tongues and everything But if you wanted to you could step up to the microphone and you could speak a prophecy And so we were having one of these prophetic sessions And um, I was praying very intensely about 9-11 This was probably just a couple of days after maybe even the day after 9-11 And I just suddenly saw a flash of like a keychain with a bunch of keys on it and i said what was that you know i kind of prayed what was that what does that mean and i felt like the lord told me that that was the keys to a generation and so i got up at the mic and said that i felt that in 9-11 the lord had given us the keys to a generation and that this was you know something that we could use for mission work and um you know it was a sign of the times and we needed to go and warn this generation to turn to the Lord, and you know that this was judgment and everything, um, and that through this a lot of people would be saved uh, as they looked to God in the aftermath of this disaster. So,
1: so fascinating! That was, like,
2: that was a pretty hearing these experience.
1: stories. I'm like, this is exactly like it's so similar to so many experiences that friends or people I know have had with Mormonism, you know, like these kind of visionary experiences, we call it feeling the spirit. And then you go up and you, you know, feel called and you, and you want to share what you've, um, come to understand through God. Like, it's just fascinating. Cause it's so, it's like every, every religion has these experiences and yet everybody feels like they're Theirs is the correct or the, sp- the special experience that you know, and yeah, the one yeah, true absolutely. experience and yet if you talk to as I've been you know I've done three other episodes so far um of people of other faiths, and it's I mean everybody has these experiences, so where do you think, and I've asked this in one of my past episodes, but um where do you think those feelings come from? Like, what is that? Why do we as humans all have that? So similar well, you know, it's about religion and God and, and these powerful emotions. Where is that coming from?
2: Well, what's really interesting is that every religion has techniques that it uses to get you there. Um, and some of these are really obvious, like fasting. If you think about fasting, I mean, nowadays, when people fast, they usually don't fast for very long, and maybe they'll eat bread and water while they're fasting. But, you know, back in the day, people used to fast for days at a time. And if you think about debilitating your body, starving your body of nutrition for, you know, 48 hours, yeah, that's going to put you into an altered state of consciousness. And you have a lot of religions that will use sweat houses to do this, where they're basically inducing a fever state you know, by, uh, turning up the temperature really high. Um, you have like all night prayer meetings in my tradition, it was all night prayer meetings with really high levels of emotion, where you're basically putting yourself into a meditative trance by praying for two to three hours. Um, and you get really, really emotional, really, really into it. And of course they're all, uh, every tradition has its sort of forms where you're encouraged to testify and you're encouraged to speak out in faith. And, um, you know, there's even like in Mormonism, they talk about, uh, I think it was Boyd K Packer said a testimony is found in the Mm -hmm. bearing of it. And so to some extent he's encouraging you to kind of fake it till you make it. Um, All of these have a sort of format that, In in my church, it was a test. They called it testimonies as well. Uh, But there always was this format where you start out an extreme center and then you have some, you know, extreme experience where God speaks to you or something and you turn your life around. And I always felt sort of inadequate because having been born a Pentecostal, I never had that kind of conversion experience. Um, And so to some extent, I felt quite a bit of social pressure to put together some kind of narrative that fit that format. Um, And so, you know, it leads to exaggerating things or leaving out details such as little niggling doubts um, because there's this social pressure to testify and to be an evangelist and to do missionary work. And if you don't do that, in some sense, you're not doing your duty as a Christian. So I think it's all of those things. It's social pressures. It's, you know, the they're training you through uh, modeling this and through an explicit format that you follow when you get up to give your testimony. Uh, you are, you know, being exposed to all of these different sort of technologies of inducing hallucinatory experience. And um, there's, <laughs> I, I often think that religion can be excused from mind controlling us only because we mind control yeah. ourselves.
1: <laughs> well, I was you know, just thinking I mean, that
2: we systematically forget everything that doesn't look, Yes,
1: we do. And it's not like, you know, I don't look at the leaders, the current leaders of religions and think, "Oh my gosh, like they are they are intentionally trying to get us to like with this format. You know, it's like that's what they were taught too." And then we just pass it down from generation right. to generation not even knowing that these are like psychological uh tricks almost for, to to trick our minds, to trick ourselves, to, to feel that this is the only special experience, you know, because we're feeling so strongly about it, it must be true or accurate or, or, you know, real. And I mean, I think about like your stories with finding lost keys and and starting your car and i'm like i have heard 1 billion story, <clears throat> stories <laughs> like that over the pulpit at church over you know at at yeah. mormon church and it's really about for for mormons it's very much about feeling the spirit and no, knowing that they have the gift of the holy ghost when they were baptized they and only Mormons have the regular companionship of the Holy Ghost um while people outside of the faith can have experiences with the Holy Ghost, those within the faith are the only ones who have it as a constant companion um and so we would say things like, "Oh well, you know Chris had you know the Holy Ghost spoke to him in this one moment or or whatever but but you're having just as many experiences as as any Mormon I know or more, you know? And so it is, it is very, this is like what fascinates me the most about religion is, and especially as I've done these, these other episodes, like I've interviewed somebody um, who was Catholic. I've interviewed a Baptist pastor. I've interviewed an Orthodox Jew. And um, it's, everybody has these, these tendencies to believe so strongly and firmly in in what they know and what they've felt, and then if only you could like listen to everybody else, it's like I hear all these stories right. and I'm like, oh, like everybody, everybody around the world has these experiences, and they're powerful, you know. Yeah. So, um, so you.
2: Well, and that played a big role in my exit as well particularly meeting Mormons and hearing their experiences.
1: Okay. So yeah. let's get to that yeah. because you, Absolutely. so Chris, just so for our listeners, Chris um, actually has a PhD in religion and he specialized in Mormon studies. Um, so tell us kind of what led you to that.
2: Well, I dated a Mormon girl in high school. She was the bishop's daughter.
1: Uh-oh. And uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. That was what my parents said.
1: <laughs> and probably what he, he was
2: saying, I, the bishop.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, was, oh, yeah. He was he was definitely having the same feeling, yeah. Um, the Um The thing is, at my high school, there were not a lot of really zealous evangelical kids. The Mormon kids were the ones that I related to because they were the ones who took their religion really seriously. And... When I dated this Mormon girl, I I shouldn't say dated. I mean, we were interested in each other and we kind of flirted, but we never actually formally dated because of the, the religion divide. But we, you know, emailed back and forth quite a bit and tried to convert each other. I read a bunch about Mormonism and Joseph Smith and got fascinated, which is eventually turned into an academic career. But the more that I talked to these Mormon kids, the more that I realized they had experiences that resembled mine. And I started reading about Mormon history and discovered, wow, Mormons had been speaking in tongues in the 1830s. They had been prophesying and doing healing miracles and everything in the 1830s. And here we Pentecostals had this narrative that we had restored the gift of tongues in 1906. And so the Mormons had beaten us to it by over 70 years. And I'm going, how do I make sense of this as a Pentecostal, you know? And the Pentecostals regard Mormons as heretics and as unsaved. And I started to question that the more that I talked to my friends and realized they were sincere, that they believed in Jesus. And I actually had some visionary experiences. I dreamed about um, my pastor preaching against the Mormons and then i challenged him openly in the church and he sort of admitted that he had been wrong and that maybe mormons were saved after all and then one day when i was in the car i was praying about this uh mormon girl and sort of uh praying that she would get saved and then i heard the lord say to me i heard the words um my salvation uh it was my salvation encompasses many ways or something like that um, and so I took that to mean basically that the Lord was telling me that she was saved, that his salvation was big enough to encompass Mormons. And, uh, so yeah, that was one of the early steps in my sort of liberalization. It took me a long time to, you know, get to where I am today, which is I'm an atheist today, but I went through sort of a gradual liberalization of my theology. And this was one of the very early steps in that. And that,
1: so that was in high school? right?
2: Yeah, this was okay. All so
1: tell me right. about because did you in your undergrad, were you studying religion?
2: I did. Yeah, I went to uh, Fresno Pacific University, which is a Mennonite University in Fresno, California. And I got a degree in biblical studies, uh, believing that I would go into the Christian ministry.
1: And what happened? <laughs> what happened is you well, the end started of it, I studying didn't... the bible biblical
2: studies right exactly yeah i mean by the end of it i mostly didn't believe in the bible anymore and so i switched over to a kind of a history track and religious studies track but uh yeah there were like i say there were many steps along the way um i took a psychology class and learned about brain science and one of the things that they talked about was split brain and split brain is where you cut the connections between the left and right hemispheres of your brain. And after this procedure, you have two centers of consciousness, your left side of your brain uh, controls your right side of the body and vice versa. And They act independently from each other. And the two sides of your brain don't know what the other one is thinking. And there's actually been somebody who uh, the left side of their brain was an atheist and the right side of their brain was a theist. You know, Uh, so these different sides of your brain can have different beliefs. And there's all kinds of other sorts of brain damage that can radically change your personality. You know, if I remove certain portions of the front of your brain. Uh, you may become a serial killer. You may become incredibly violent because your self-control centers, your emotional regulation centers of your brain have been removed. And so it really seems like your personality is a function of your physical brain, uh, which is kind of not consistent with the Pentecostal and Christian notion of a soul being the state of your personality and that your personality can survive death. Well, if my personality can't survive brain damage, partial destruction of my brain, if I become a different person after partial destruction of my brain, what would make me think that my personality could survive the total destruction of my brain, you know? And so this really challenged my belief, particularly if you start thinking about brain damage that changes your personality. Well, when you're resurrected, are you resurrected as the person you were before the brain damage or the person you were after the brain before. damage? This gets you into before, all kinds of, of sticky. Before. What's that?
1: <laughs> we all know yeah, that, but, Chris.
2: <laughs> but then then the person you are after the brain damage, I mean, what if before the brain damage, you're a bad person and after the brain damage, you become a good person, you know? I mean, can we accept if, you, let's say you fall in love with somebody after brain damage, can we accept that that person is going to be erased when that person is resurrected? Um. There, It's just really, it gets really sticky when you try to make some sense of this from a religious perspective. Uh, And so I concluded pretty early on in my disaffection that I didn't really believe in uh, an afterlife. I actually remember reading a book about afterlife beliefs in different religions. And The author in the introduction was talking about how religions that have been really successful tend to have afterlife beliefs. And one reason for that is that they can motivate their soldiers. So if your soldiers believe that they're going to go to heaven afterward, then they are more motivated to go out and put their lives on the line. And this is how the major religions, Christianity and Islam, have spread themselves is through, you know, violence and conquest And a lot of it owes to their afterlife beliefs. And so this essentially has been selected for by evolutionary processes, this afterlife belief. And I remember just being incredibly persuaded by that and turning to my friend, April, and saying, (laughs) I think I'm an atheist. (laughs) And it didn't stick at the time. But um, I, yeah, this was when I was in college. It didn't stick, but uh, for, you know, maybe a few days I was a pretty intense atheist, and in fact, I I wrote down this experience and kind of an atheist screed, and then years later, I ran across that document on my computer, and I was so embarrassed by what I had written because I was not an atheist anymore that I actually went through and started to edit it and like soften the language in this document because I just didn't want somebody to stumble across this on my computer. Like I, I imagined dying and then my parents opening up the files on my computer and seeing this and being horrified and thinking their child (laughs) was a closet atheist and eventually i actually deleted this file and i kick myself now because i wish i still had that file uh but that just goes to show how we edit our own histories i mean that's a really explicit case where i self-consciously edited my history right but i was I was editing my history in order to bring it in line with uh, the editing that I had already done subconsciously because I had completely forgotten. Wait, so how, you know, so you were an atheist
1: for like three days. This, this must have been when you were like in your undergrad, (laughs) but you, when you were a sophomore, okay. But then for years after that, you believed in God. So what kind of brought you back to the fold? Like after those three days of intense, like atheism. Were you suddenly like, oh, no, but what about all my experiences I've had? Like, what, how did you get out of that funk?
2: Yeah, I think that is, I think it was my experiences. And I also think it was my mom's experiences. My mom has some fairly uh, intense experiences as well. And uh, I always kind of hung a lot of my faith on that. And th- there's lots of uh, faith-promoting stories in Pentecostalism. Do you, can, do you feel comfortable sharing any of her I mean,
1: experiences? If
2: not,, oh, um, let's see if I can do do the big one justice um when she was just investigating christ- uh Pentecostal Christianity as a Catholic, she had this roommate who she felt was kind of a bad influence on her, and um she had been trying to sort of break the news to this roommate for a while that she wanted to get out of that situation. Um and so she watched The Cross and the Switchblade and after watching it, which is a you know uh uh it's a movie based on a book written by a Christian prophet named David Wilkerson about a gang gang bangers oh. being converted. Um very famous Pentecostal book. Um, but she after watching this film prayed, Okay, God, if this is real and if you want me to do this thing, then you have to help me break the news to my roommate that I want out of this apartment. And um, the next morning, the roommate said, it's okay. I know that you need to leave. I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw this tall, handsome angel come into the apartment, put his arm around you and escort you out of the apartment. And so I know that you need to leave. And so the, the persuasive thing about that experience to me was always that It wasn't an experience that my mom had generated within herself. It was an experience that someone else had had who didn't know uh, what she was going through. And so that experience was always more persuasive to me than anything that I had experienced in my life. Now, maybe the roommate overheard her praying, you know, maybe she was praying out loud and the roommate overheard her and said this the next morning. I don't know. But that was something that I always sort of hung my faith
1: on. Yeah, that is so, and I think sometimes we remember we remember history wrong. So I think sometimes we have experiences <laughs> and maybe, yeah, maybe it did happen a little bit differently than what was told to you or, you know, maybe there had been a conversation at some point right. or, or something, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, right. We
2: improve. We definitely our change we definitely our past. Do. We
1: change our experiences. We we remember things differently than they actually happened. Um,
2: There's been a lot of research on memory, and one of the studies that I find fascinating is a study of 9/11. These researchers asked people a couple of days after 9/11 where they were when they heard about 9/11. And then they came back to the same people a year later and asked them where they were when they heard about 9-11. And the stories were often very, very different. But people a year later were so sure of what they recounted a year later that when the researchers confronted them with what they'd said two days after, they said, I don't know why I said that, but that's not where I was, you know. (laughs) So they would they would reject their own memories from two days after Uh, based on their recollections a year later. They were so convinced that their, their recollections a year later were absolutely true. So yeah, often, the more you recall a memory, the more damaged it becomes because our brains overwrite the memory every time that we recall it. So every time that you access that memory, you are compromising it and changing it a little bit. And at the same time, the more that you recall a memory, the more certain you become that that memory is true, and so the the falsest memories often feel the truest to us. And it's kind yeah, of yeah, it's weird interesting because my aunt
1: she had um, this story. So she was dating somebody. This was before she married her husband, and they'd been dating for a while. And they, she said that um, it kind of got to the point where they were deciding if they were going to get married, and and. But she had this dream one night where they were like standing in a street and they couldn't hear, she couldn't like all the cars were driving by and she couldn't hear what he was trying to say to her. And anyway, throughout this dream, she just got the feeling like this isn't right. Like we're, something's off. We're not connecting. We're not supposed to be together kind of thing. And so she had told this story for years and years about how she had this dream and da, da, da. Well, years later, she was reading in her journal from that time period, and she discovered that it was actually him that had had the dream, and you know it was like a little bit different <laughs> and I was like, oh that's so that's so interesting that's that's totally how how it happens like i if you keep journals and I'm an avid journal keeper or i I was in the past more so, and sometimes I'll go back and read about something that happened and be like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't remember it like that or that was a little bit different than I thought or that didn't happen the way that I remember, you know." So, it is it is interesting how powerful yeah. our minds are and how they can change things.
2: I I have become a better journal taker. I really wish that I had been a better journal taker back during my religious years because I would love to go back and compare some of my memories now on the on the rare occasions when i do run across something that i wrote back then i often am surprised you know i'm like oh i'd completely forgot a, forgotten about yeah. that supernatural experience i had because anything that doesn't fit our narratives about ourselves uh falls away you know we just forget about it and we don't do it on purpose it just uh just because it's not something that we access to talk about ourselves or to explain our identities to people we just forget okay so
1: you speaking of forgetting you forgot you were an atheist for a few days and then and then became very christian (laughs) and religious again and it sounds like you were in that state of mind for years after so when did you kind of start falling away again or when did you start losing your faith again
2: Well, you know, there were, there were a variety of things, and I feel like I lost my faith a little bit at a time. Um, I had, uh, wh- one of the big things I'll say is that Jesus in the New Testament says that he's going to return, he's going to appear in the clouds and gather the elect from the four winds, and this is going to happen before this generation passes away and it so that's a very explicit time sensitive prophecy and it didn't happen like that and in fact the book of second peter appears to be responding to this because uh that book says peter predicts that jesus is not going to return before this generation passes away and he says people there's going to be lots of doubters who say oh where is he you know and then um uh, Peter says, well, it's not that he's failed to come, it's that he's being patient so that more people can be saved. And the view of biblical scholars on this is that this is actually being it's not being written by Peter, it's being written by somebody in the 2nd century and they are putting these words retroactively into Peter's mouth in order to explain why Jesus never came. And that seemed extremely persuasive to me. I mean, it this obviously seemed like a an apologetic like an offense to me um, and uh and so that was a, that... a big one for me that should was that something a you kind of, of studied in school in yeah, I would say this was toward the end of my Bible degree. I still did not completely lose my faith over this, but this was something that really, really shook the foundations of my faith and um led me away from the view that Jesus had been uh, an incarnation of God. You know, I started to view Jesus increasingly as maybe an especially inspired sage rather than as an incarnation of God around this point. Um, I also had some troubling missionary experiences. Uh, When I was a missionary in the Philippines, we were speaking in a school Uh, And there was a kid who was obviously gay, and he raised his hand and said, Why does God send gay people to hell? And I didn't really believe in hell anymore at that point, or at least I had doubts about hell. And I didn't really believe that gay people were going to be sent there. But I was with this older missionary who was hosting us there in the Philippines, and I didn't want to disagree with him you know, in front of these other people, because he was the pastor of the congregation there. And so I didn't want to go against his authority. And so I kind of punted it to him and said, you know, Mike, why don't you take this one? And he tried to push it back on me. And he's like, no, I think you should speak to it. And I said, no, you really don't want me to speak about this. Why don't you go ahead and take it? And so he did. And just basically his response was, this is what the Bible says, and we follow the Bible. But it really made me reflect on that those parts of the Bible. And I concluded that I didn't believe in those parts of the Bible. And not long after that, my friend Paris, my lifelong friend, who had been a an ardent Republican and an ardent Christian all his life, came out to me and revealed that he had come out to a number of our other friends years before but he had never felt comfortable coming out to me in fact he had tried to come out to me a couple times but I had always laughed it off as a joke because I didn't believe that he could possibly be gay and so that you know those were experiences that really made me reflect on maybe there's something morally wrong not just intellectually wrong with my tradition but maybe there's something morally wrong with my tradition and I started looking at parts of the Bible where, for instance, God commands the Israelites to go and kill the Canaanites, including all of the women and children. And they, some of the Israelites bring back like goats or animals, livestock. And God says, I, I told you to kill everything. And God gets really angry with them that they spared the lives of these livestock. You know, really like disturbing violence in the Old Testament. There's also animal sacrifice. Yeah, which the I Old Testament is like right with... Um,
1: very disturbing
2: stories right but the thing is once you start once you start questioning some of that stuff in the old testament it has implications for the new testament and so once i had rejected animal sacrifice as a human invention then the atonement which is the ultimate fulfillment of the law of animal sacrifice yeah no longer made any sense right because it's based on this whole logic of when you do something bad you are intrinsically tainted somehow you become impure you become so disgusting that god can't look at you anymore and somehow by killing animals that blood the shedding of blood makes you pure and cleanses you again and therefore god can can look at you again and and jesus is the ultimate version of this his blood covers our sins and that whole logic makes no sense. And I started to realize this, Um, particularly, you know, the, the whole point of punishment is to teach you a lesson. And if Jesus takes the punishment for us, then you don't learn the lesson. And so that defeats the whole logic of punishment. And I just started to realize this whole sort of criminal justice system that the Old Testament is based on where blood covers sin and sin causes intrinsic taint to your soul uh was like a very primitive way of uh making sense <laughs> of game theory and things that we understand a lot better today you know now that we've had uh millennia of philosophers thinking about these issues we understand better where you know crime and punishment and all of this comes from um and so now it this logic of animal sacrifice and atonement no longer jives with what we understand about how all of this crime and punishment works. And so that once the atonement had fallen out of my worldview, I feel like in some ways that was the last straw because you can't be a Pentecostal or a Christian evangelical Christian and not believe in the atonement. All of the songs that you sing in church are about the blood of Jesus uh, you know, covering our sins and God forgiving us of our sins. They're all rooted in this purity, sin, logic. And once you drop that out, I felt like a liar when I went to church because we would sing those songs and I didn't feel like I could sing along yeah, the atonement. without feeling like a liar, you know? So that's when it became yeah, if you, be a Yeah, because
1: if you don't believe in the community. atonement, you can't. I mean, and in fact, I... It was so bizarre because that was the one thing for me that even at my strongest point, I had the hardest time understanding. It's like, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure it out. Like I could never understand why it was necessary or, and and no one could ever explain it to me in a satisfactory way, like why it needed to happen, why it happened, what it meant. And people were always like, oh, I just, I just know I can feel the love through the atonement and through, you know, through the atonement this and the atonement that. And I, it was something I never could quite understand. Um, Whereas for a lot of people it came easily, but, but yeah, for me, when I, when I lost my faith, that was, that was something that I had never really had, you know, like I'd had faith in other things, but not really that and and you're right it is really hard to be a christian when you are doubting that that is the keystone of christianity you know so so okay
2: well and there's a good reason it never made sense to you because it's rooted in this ancient near eastern logic you know and it really was it was all across the near East, people thought like this from India to, you know, Greece, people had this purity logic and animal sacrifice and blood and impurity, purity. Um, But we don't think like that anymore. That's so so interesting because I've actually
1: never um, heard that explanation of the atonement and how it's so related to animal sacrifice, but that, now that makes sense and and i think for me it's really fascinating when you look at religion there all of these traditions that we have or all of the things that we um you know learn about and believe they do have their roots in something you know and usually you don't know about Absolutely. it anymore you don't know about the roots unless you like you chris study religion as a phd you know like most of us are just like Oh yes, this is what we're taught. Like Jesus Christ died for us. And that's all you need to know, you know, when really there's a lot more to it. Um, okay. So you, you kind of started to lose your faith. Um, was this, was that challenging for you as you started to lose your belief in Christ and God and once again became an atheist? Was that, challenging for you? Was that a traumatizing experience at all? You know,
2: I would say it was most challenging in terms of how I related to other people because this had been such a part of my identity for so long. My entire social network was deeply, deeply Christian and uh, my academic uh, pursuits were all organized around religion and My family was deeply religious and I was really worried about what they would think. And so it was really, it took me quite a while to come out to my family. And initially I sort of let them down easy and I started talking a little bit about my doubts here and there. And eventually I revealed myself as an agnostic, which means somebody who doesn't who doesn't know whether they believe in God or not. And really at this point I was an atheist, but agnostic was kind of a, a nicer word that got at the same thing, and it, yeah, it was less heartbreaking. And this was really hard for my mom. We had long discussions about it, and then you know a year or two later, when I came out as an atheist, somehow that was a thousand times worse, and we had to have all it the same is, conversations all over again.
1: <laughs> it's terrible. It when like I remember, my me. mom told me but, she was uh, an atheist, and this is when I still believed, and that was that was tough. Like. Atheist is a really uh I mean we are taught to fear that word above all, you know um
2: absolutely so
1: yeah,
2: but you know i I think what what made it less traumatizing for me is that I had new beliefs that made a lot of sense and that gave my life you know meaning and gave me ethics and morality and um I, I often think that what really makes it possible to depart from religion is not realizing that your religion has problems or is wrong. What makes it possible to comfortably exit is to have a more satisfying alternative, a new worldview, and a new yeah. community to replace the old one. Yeah, that's when you can.
1: Leave, I, you
2: know, and that really,
1: you know, it's, it was the same for me. for me. Like I was able to find. First of all, my worldview, like I was really, when I stopped going to church, I was very clear on where I stood and my worldview. Um, And I also found community really quickly. And there's a lot of people who leave religion and it's very difficult for a lot of people to find community. How, any recommendations on, on how to find community or how did you find community after religion?
2: Well, you know, I've had a lot of success with uh, humanist groups and meetups. Um, That's been a really useful way for me to meet like-minded people. And I've tried a lot of other kinds of groups and meetups and clubs. And I've always found that a lot of them are sort of over-specialized. That, uh, you know, if you go to a tennis group, you're going to get a lot of like tennis pros who love tennis and everything (laughs) that they do is about tennis. If you go to a board game group, you get a lot of like incredibly nerdy, introverted people who don't know how to socialize, you know. And so this is something that I've run into with interest groups like that. But humanist groups seem to be seem to attract a really broad range of different people with a broad range of interests. And so that's been really successful for me is to go on, you know, meetup.com or on Facebook and look for the local secular group or the local humanist group. And usually they have lots of activities that they're doing that don't Uh really have anything to do with religion. And, um, some that do, you know, they'll go do volunteering or, uh, they'll, you know, get together and listen to speakers, talk about ethics and things like that. So you can sort of scratch both your itches. You can, you can get all the ethical philosophy and everything that you want. You can also have just normal community and just make new friends. So. Well, thank you,
1: Chris, um, for coming on and telling us your story and sharing your wisdom. I think you had, you know, so many good things to say. And I think a lot of people are going to to relate to what you were saying. Um, I certainly did. And I certainly related to your story and I appreciate it. Let's go in the garden.
0: You'll find something waiting right there where you left it. On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. The underside is lighter when you turn. Intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays a Rebecca Sugar cover by Bly Valentine. You can find more of Bly's music at blyvalentine.com.